Section 5 of Report of the Presidential Task Force on Market Mechanisms. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patrick McAfee, Merritt Island. Chapter 5. Market Performance. Market performance can be measured against a variety of quantitative and qualitative criteria, including the availability of the market, the liquidity and depth provided by the market makers, the orderliness and fairness of the market, and the strength of the clearing and credit systems that support the market. The events of October 19th and 20th tested the capacity of the equity market to a degree that was not widely anticipated. Availability of Market The most immediately striking fact about the performance of the equity market during the market break is that, in the face of selling pressure of unprecedented severity, it handled a record volume of transactions. The extent to which trading in listed stocks and the S&P 500 futures contract was suspended during the critical days of October 19th and 20th was, in light of the pressures brought to bear, surprisingly limited. On the morning of October 19th, 8% of NYSE issues, or a total of 187 stocks, failed to open for trading at or near 9.30 a.m. By 11.30 a.m., 41 of these stocks remained unopened, and by noon, all but 25 were trading. During the course of October 19th, trading was halted in seven stocks. On the morning of October 20th, 90 stocks failed to open promptly, and by 11.30 a.m., all but 15 of these were trading. However, during the course of October 20th, trading was halted in 175 stocks, including some of the most actively traded issues on the exchange. The S&P 500 futures market was open throughout the day on Monday and halted trading only between 12.15 p.m. and 1.05 p.m. on Tuesday. While total NASDAQ trading volume increased during the market break, it declined dramatically as a percentage of NYSE volume. From a level of 83% of NYSE volume prior to the break, NASDAQ volume dropped to 37% of NYSE levels on October 19th and 47% on October 20th. The options market had great difficulty trading on both Monday and Tuesday. On October 19th, the S&P 100 option went through two rotations before opening for free trading at 12.36 p.m. On October 20th, the S&P 100 option again required two rotations to open, and the CBOE halted trading for about one and one-half hours. Thus, free trading did not begin until 3.23 p.m., which allowed just 52 minutes of free trading. Thus, all marketplaces, except the options market and, to some extent, the over-the-counter market, 
remained reasonably available for trading on October 19th and October 20th. However, the performance of financial markets cannot be judged solely in terms of volumes traded. The terms on which trades were executed are equally important. Effective market-making mechanisms should sustain fair and orderly trading in several critical respects. At best, market mechanisms should smooth out temporary fluctuations in market prices. At a minimum, they should not exacerbate price fluctuations. Also, trading should be conducted on an equitable basis. Similar orders entered under equal conditions should not be executed on widely different terms. In neither of these respects did market mechanisms perform effectively during the critical days of the October market break. Price behavior. Throughout the week of October 12th to 16th, Market mechanisms for equity-related instruments coped reasonably well with heavy and gradually increasing selling pressure. Even on Friday, October 16th, the major stock markets handled a record volume and a substantial selling imbalance without the kinds of extreme price deviations that occurred on the 19th and 20th. Compared to the events of the 19th and 20th, the stock indices also track their respective futures contracts reasonably. In contrast, the price performance of market mechanisms on the 19th and 20th appears to have been notable, both in terms of history and the immediately surrounding period of time. At critical times, prices of individual stocks, derivative instruments, and the equity market as a whole experienced major fluctuations. This is apparent in the behavior of the major NYSE stock indices during October 19th and 20th. In the final hour of trading on Monday, October 19, the Dow fell by 220 points, or 11.2%. At the open on Tuesday, October 20, most of these losses were made up as the Dow opened 12.1% higher to just below the levels that had been in effect an hour before the close on Monday. By noon on Tuesday, the Dow had dropped back 11.4%, almost exactly to the level of the close on Monday. When the Dow finally stabilized on subsequent trading days, between 1,900 and 2,000, it had recovered all of these additional losses. Price fluctuations in the futures market were often more violent. For example, in a period of one hour beginning around 1.30 p.m. on Monday, October 19, the price of an S&P 500 futures contract fell by 12% despite a drop of only 7% in that hour in the S&P 500 index. Similarly, on Tuesday, October 20, price fluctuations in the futures market were often more extreme than those of the underlying stock indices. Thus, the S&P 500 contract which fell about 17% in the final two hours of Monday's trading, opened up 10% on Tuesday and quickly recovered the full 17% loss 
of the final hours of Monday. At the same time, the S&P 500 index rallied 9%. However, in the next two hours, this entire gain and more disappeared as the S&P 500 futures contract fell by 25% until trading was halted. The index dropped 12% in the same period. After several more gyrations during the week, the futures market finally stabilized in subsequent weeks near the level it had reached before the sharp midday decline on Monday, October 19. This pattern of large but transitory price changes also characterized trading in individual stocks. For example, two large capitalization NYSE-listed stocks that failed to open on Monday morning until about 10.30 a.m. opened down 17% and 19%. Within the next hour, the Dow moved down 1.4%, and these two stocks rose by 13% and 16% respectively, recovering roughly 80% of their opening losses. On Tuesday morning, four stocks out of a sample of 50 large capitalization stocks studied in detail, opened at prices more than 25% higher than at their close on Monday. These openings occurred at various times between 9.50 a.m. and 10.50 a.m., and the four stocks opened up by an average of 27.8%. By 11.30 a.m., their prices had declined an average of 15.1% from the opening levels, eliminating about 55% of their opening gains. Patterns of sharp movements in individual stocks, which were rapidly reversed, were common on Tuesday, October 20. Based on an examination of the average prices at which NASDAQ stocks traded within 15-minute intervals, the setting of prices by a large number of market makers appears to have smoothed out price trends. However, extreme disparities in prices at which individual trades were executed during these intervals were not uncommon. On Monday, October 19, and Tuesday, October 20, The highest reported price at which particular stocks changed hands was sometimes more than 10% higher than the lowest reported price of those stocks in the same 15-minute interval. In certain instances, price disparities of more than 20% occurred in essentially contemporaneous trades. Price behavior in the S&P 100 options market is more difficult to assess. In contrast to the stock and futures markets, which handled volumes well in excess of normal, volume in the S&P 100 options market was down significantly on October 19 and 20. Also, as noted above, the S&P 100 option did not trade freely for extended periods of time, especially on Tuesday. 
Nevertheless, prices at which the S&P 100 options did trade exhibited discontinuous jumps. For a typical example, the S&P 100 November 305 put option traded at $66 in the first rotation on Monday and $58 in the second rotation, a 12% difference with no intervening trades, although the second rotation occurred roughly an hour later. Some prices were also disorderly. For example, on Tuesday, the S&P 100 November 185 put, which should have been substantially less valuable, opened at 11.54 a.m. with a price of $81. In the intervening 13-minute period, the actual level of the S&P 100 index had changed by less than 2%, and the S&P 500 futures contract was unchanged. Equal access to trading opportunities. The extreme volatility of market prices on October 19 and 20 subjected all market participants, and particularly small investors, to capriciously different treatment. Price variations as large and erratic as those that occurred on October 19 and 20 can be inherently discriminatory. An investor selling stock or futures contracts near the close on Monday suffered a loss of 10 to 12 percent compared to investors who sold either an hour earlier or the next morning. In contrast, an investor who bought at or near the open on Tuesday morning paid from 10 to 20 percent more than one who bought either at the previous afternoon's close or two hours later. In addition to these discrepancies, small investors were at an apparent disadvantage in speed of order execution. Part of the disadvantage stemmed from an understandable difficulty experienced by small investors in reaching retail brokers, which was widely reported but impossible to quantify after the fact. Another part of the problem was, however, attributable to delays and failures of the automated, small-order-oriented processing systems of both the NYSE and the OTC market. The orders of small investors are generally executed through these systems, and small investors tend to have less access to other means of executing orders than do larger investors. Although the NYSE DOT system was originally designed for small orders, the permitted order size has increased to 30,099 shares for market orders and 99,999 shares for limit orders. Nevertheless, the DOT system remains the most important means of processing small investor orders. On Monday, October 19, orders for 396 million shares were entered into the NYSE's DOT 
system. This unprecedented traffic at times overwhelmed the mechanical printers that print dot orders at certain trading posts, resulting in significant delays in executing market orders and in entering limit orders. These delays meant that market orders were executed at prices, often very different from those in effect when the orders were entered. The delays also meant that limit orders may not have been executed because of their limits having been passed by the time the order reached the trading post. The SOES, Small Order Execution System, designed to execute trades in the OTC market of 1,000 shares or less, typically handles 12 to 15 percent of trades in OTC stocks traded in the national market system, although less than 2% of share volume. In addition to SOES, some large full-service brokers and wholesalers have comparable proprietary computer systems, which typically execute more than one-half of their orders. On October 19 and 20, Two factors limited execution of trades through the SOES and other automated execution systems. First, some large firms, four of the 50 largest on October 19th and 18 of the 50 largest on October 20, did not participate in the SOES system at all during those days, even though they had previously participated. Other firms withdrew for a portion of those days. Second, automatic protection features designed to protect market makers against potential losses from executing orders where the ask price in the quotation system is not higher than the bid price shut down trading in many stocks on SOES and the proprietary systems during much of the 19th and 20th. On October 19, these systems were incapable, on average, of trading each of the top 50 NASDAQ stocks 43% of the time. On Tuesday, October 20, this figure rose to about 53%. During these shutdown periods, Small orders in some of the proprietary systems backed up and, in some instances, were automatically executed in batches when the systems again began to function. Others were executed even later in the day. These system failures, coupled with natural delays in processing orders at the retail level, meant that small investor orders were executed at random times and, therefore, at prices that varied widely from those in existence when purchase or sale decisions were made. The unequal speed at which trades were executed did not necessarily disadvantage small investors. In some cases, delays in execution, for example, of buy orders, entered prior to the opening on Monday, might have been substantially beneficial to some small investors. However, the existence of unequal access would almost necessarily have created at least an appearance of unfairness. In the futures and options marketplaces, 
different levels of access to trading have a significantly different impact than in the various stock marketplaces. Non-institutional participants play only a limited role in the S&P 500 stock index futures market, but play a significant role in the S&P 100 options market. The problem of the different treatment of large and small investors in these markets was a consequence of differences in response speeds and access to information. Non-professional participants who lack access to continuous market information expect to have continuous opportunities to withdraw from investments in a timely way. Obviously, on October 19 and 20, these expectations were unfulfilled. In the S&P 100 options market on October 19 and 20, everyone suffered from some inability to trade. Individual participants who wrote put options before October 19 and 20 often found themselves either locked into their positions or involuntarily liquidated during these crucial two days. Individual participants in the futures market may have suffered substantial losses before becoming aware of what had happened, and even normal delays in executing retail orders may have exacerbated these losses. Market Maker Performance The active market makers whose performance was analyzed based upon information available to the task force include the NYSE specialists, OTC and options market makers, and the local traders in the futures market who play the analogous market maker role. Data was not available to enable the task force to analyze the performance of NYSE block traders, who also play an important market making role. New York Stock Exchange Specialists The performance of NYSE specialists during the October market break period varied over time and from specialist to specialist. From October 14 through October 16, while the Dow was falling by 10.6%, specialists on balance purchased approximately $286 million in stock. On October 19, specialists as a whole purchased just under $486 million worth of stock. During the first hour and one half on October 19, specialists bought heavily in the face of unprecedented selling pressure. At this critical time, specialists were willing to lean against the dominant downward trend in the market at a significant cost to themselves. Also, in the price collapse which characterized the final hour of trading on October 19, most specialists again appear to have been net purchasers of stock, although their participation at this time was significantly less extensive in the face of a greater price decline than their intervention at the October 19 opening. These figures, however, conceal marked differences in behavior among specialists. Fully 30% of specialists in a sample of 50 large capitalization stocks 
were net sellers of those stocks on October 19. Further, 10% of specialists in that sample finished the day with net short positions in those stocks. Finally, about 10% of the openings on October 19 that were down sharply from the closing prices on October 16 were followed by sharp rebounds that eliminated much of those initial losses. On October 20, roughly one-third of the specialists in the 50-stock sample set opening prices which were substantially higher than closing prices on October 19, and which declined rapidly to levels at or near their October 19 closes. These apparent misjudgments of opening prices may have aggravated an already uncertain atmosphere on Tuesday, October 20. On the whole, specialists sold over $450 million in stock, and in the sample of 50 large capitalization stocks, fully 82% of the specialists were net sellers on October 20. An examination was made of the 31 stocks for which detailed trade data for October 19 and 20 were available. These stocks were classified into three groups, those for which specialists purchased stock in a way that generally tended to counterbalance market trends and smooth price fluctuations, even if they were not always successful those for which specialists acted in a way that generally reinforced market trends, and those for which specialists took only limited net positions. This classification was done by the task force and differs from the tests used by the NYSE to evaluate specialist performance. The results of this examination are as follows. The limited nature of some specialists' contributions to price stability may have been due to the exhaustion of their purchasing power following attempts to stabilize markets at the open on October 19. However, for other specialists, lack of purchasing power appears not to have been the determining factor in their behavior. It is understandable that specialists would not sacrifice large amounts of capital in what must have seemed a hopeless attempt to stem overwhelming waves of selling pressure. Nevertheless, from the final hours of trading on October 19 through October 20, a substantial number of NYSE specialists appear not to have been a significant force in counterbalancing market trends. OTC Market Makers Unlike shares on the NYSE, each NASDAQ stock is served by a number of market makers, none of which has either an express or implied commitment to maintain an orderly market. Under these conditions, it is difficult to relate the performance of this market as a whole to the performance of individual market makers. During the week of October 19, some market makers formally withdrew from making markets. In addition, some market makers ceased performing their function, merely by not answering their telephones during this period. 
However, it is impossible on the basis of information available to the task force to assess the extent and impact of this form of non-participation. Other market makers who were willing to trade were unreachable when they were overwhelmed by the volume of telephone orders, many of which normally would have been executed by the automated systems. There were also widespread reports that many market makers, who normally stand ready to buy and sell hundreds and sometimes thousands of shares at their quoted prices, were only willing to fulfill their minimum obligation by buying and selling 100 shares at the quoted price. Another indication of deterioration in market-making performance is the withdrawal by some market makers from the SOES system, thus reducing from 1,000 to 100 the number of shares they were obligated to buy or sell. In addition, bid-offer spreads also widened during this period. For example, on October 20, the larger NASDAQ securities for which real-time quotations are disseminated had quoted spreads of one-eighth, one-fourth, or three-eighths only 32.6% of the time, compared to such quoted spreads 42.8% of the time during the three weeks ending October 16. Locals in the Futures Market Locals in the Futures Market, who, like OTC traders, have no formal commitment to stabilize prices, were as a group somewhat more aggressive than normal in taking net positions on October 19. During the three-day market decline from Wednesday, October 14 to Friday, October 16, gross purchases by locals averaged about 48,000 contracts per day, or about 46% of total volume. The best available data indicates that locals were net sellers on October 14 and small net buyers on the subsequent two days. Over the three-day decline, local net buys were 235 contracts worth about $34 million or less than one-tenth of one percent of total volume. Thus, locals did not help offset the market decline during those days. On Monday, October 19, locals purchased 48,487 contracts, or 31.4% of total volume. Net buys were 1,743 contracts, worth $221 million, representing about 1% of total volume. These net buys were generally concentrated in time periods when prices were falling. Only after 2.30 p.m. did locals not enter the market as net buyers during periods of declining prices. Moreover, like the stock market, the willingness of locals to lean against prevailing price trends was largely exhausted by the middle of the afternoon on October 19. From 2.30 p.m., 
to the close of business on October 20, gross local buys amounted to 35,325 contracts, or 24.1% of total volume. Net buys were a negative 530 contracts worth $59 million. In sum, while the locals as a group absorbed some selling pressure, they did not act uniformly and were not able to counterbalance the public selling pressure. Since the locals do not and have no responsibility to absorb significant imbalances in order flow, the futures market functions as an efficient risk transfer mechanism only when the activity of locals is supplemented by market participants, such as speculators and index arbitrageurs. This is especially true with respect to imbalances of the magnitude exhibited during the October market break. Options Market Makers The structure of the options marketplace is more important to an assessment of the performance of the options marketplace than is the performance of the options market makers. Options market makers were constrained from maintaining a stable orderly market because options are inherently susceptible to the largest percentage price changes of all equity products. Reliable data about underlying indices was not always available. The exchanges failed to add new strike prices in a timely fashion. Extraordinary demands for additional margin were made even on market makers with hedged positions, and the truncated periods of free trading may have justifiably affected the willingness of market makers to establish positions that they were unsure of being able to liquidate readily. Although the lack of free trading inhibited reasonable price continuity on October 19 and 20, the bid-ask spread in the S&P 100 market shifted frequently, but generally remained reasonable during periods of free trading. However, there were numerous price disparities in the options market. On the whole, options market makers did not play an important role in stabilizing their own market, and through their hedging activities may have marginally added to the pressure in other markets. Clearing and credit. Difficulties with the clearing and credit systems further exacerbated the difficulties of market makers and other market participants during the market break. Because of the five-day settlement rule for stocks, these concerns were less immediate in the stock markets than in the futures and options markets, where settlement is made the next day. However, in the stock market, the unprecedented volume led to an unusually large number of questioned trades. Questioned trades affected 67,673 NYSE trades on October 19 and 62,564 NYSE trades 
on October 20. That represented 4.02% and 4.25% of transaction sides on those two days, respectively. As a percentage of transaction sides, these latter figures were 202 and 220% above normal, respectively. Uncertainties concerning the ultimate disposition of question trades added to other uncertainties regarding the financial condition of specialists and other broker-dealers on October 19 and 20. Settlement problems in the futures and options markets also contributed to these uncertainties. During the day of October 19, the CME Clearinghouse, which is responsible for setting margins on futures contracts, responded to the sharp price decline by making intraday variation margin calls for $1.6 billion cash and cash equivalents. Covering these margin calls were paid in by losing clearinghouse members during the day. According to clearinghouse rules, these funds were not paid out to the winners until the next day. In addition, variation margin calls, which had been made on Monday morning to cover settlements of Friday's closing positions, were unusually high. Total variation margin calls on Monday morning and during the day on Monday were $2 billion. At the same time, OCC members also faced substantial morning and intraday margin calls to cover the deterioration in the positions of put options sellers, both proprietary and customer. On October 19, the OCC issued four intraday margin calls that collected $1 billion from clearinghouse members. In many cases, the OCC clearing members, such as large investment banks, also belong to the CME. Like the CME clearinghouse, the OCC does not pay out excess margin funds on an intraday basis. Thus, OCC and CME clearing members were required to deposit $3 billion on Monday, October 19. Some of these deposits were to cover options losses that were offset by futures profits, which resulted in further strains on liquidity. After giving credit for Monday's intraday margin calls, Tuesday morning margin calls for Monday's trading activity were $2.1 billion for the CME Clearinghouse and $0.9 billion for the OCC. Because Clearinghouse members are required to meet these calls even before any compensating deposits are received, either from customers or Clearinghouses, the Clearing members were compelled to increase their reliance on intraday credit from their commercial bankers. 
However, the bankers in question were already concerned about potential losses that their clearing member customers might have suffered in other lines of activity, such as risk arbitrage, block trading, or foreign exchange trading. Bankers were also concerned that the clearinghouses would be unable to collect all their margin calls and would be unable to pay in full the balances owed to their clearinghouse members. These concerns apparently resulted in the withdrawal of uncommitted lines of credit to some market participants, restrictions on new loans to some clearinghouse members, and a general concern on the part of bankers overextending credit to cover Tuesday morning margin calls. In this atmosphere of uncertainty, the more possibility that commercial banks might curtail lending to clearinghouse members was enough to raise questions and feed rumors about the viability of those firms and the clearinghouses. However, timely intervention by the Federal Reserve helped assure a continuing supply of credit to the clearinghouse members. At 8.15 a.m. on Tuesday morning, it was announced that Quote, the Federal Reserve Bank affirms its readiness to serve as a source of liquidity to support the economic and financial system. End quote. Notwithstanding these assurances, there were continued difficulties on Tuesday. For example, because of delays in the CME clearing process, two major clearinghouse members with margin collections of $1.5 billion due them on Tuesday did not receive their funds until after 3 p.m., many hours later than normal. Meanwhile, these clearinghouse members had already credited customers with balances from their profitable trades, and in many cases, the customers had already withdrawn these balances from the clearinghouse members. OCC's clearing process was also delayed on Tuesday, and one of its major clearing members required an immediate capital infusion to meet margin calls. Although the cash credit and the timing demands of the current clearinghouse system raised the possibility of a default, none occurred. On the other hand, the mere possibility that a clearinghouse might default or that liquidity would disappear contributed to volatility on Tuesday in two important ways. First, some market makers did curtail their market-making activities, especially in the case of block trading, where temporary commitments of capital were required because they feared that loans or credit lines from their commercial bankers might be exhausted or withdrawn. Second, uncertainties about the activities and viability of the clearinghouses, as well as major broker-dealers, appear to have increased investor uncertainty in the already turbulent atmosphere of October 20. These uncertainties intensified market fluctuations and the sense of panic evident that day. 
Had decisive action not been taken by the Federal Reserve, it appears that far worse consequences would have been a very real possibility. Summary The degree to which existing market mechanisms can be held responsible for what occurred during the October break depends upon the standards by which these mechanisms are measured. Ideally, the full transition from a Dow level of 2,500 on Wednesday, October 14, to a range between 1,900 and 2,000, where equity markets settled in late 1987, should have occurred in a rational way, without sharp transitory declines or rises. From October 14 to 16, price movements, trading activity, and market maker performance were generally consistent with any reasonable notion of orderly markets, despite a decline of about 7% in the major market indices. However, as the rate of decline accelerated on November 19, the efficiency with which the equity market functioned deteriorated markedly. By the late afternoon of October 19, market makers on the major stock exchanges appear to have largely abandoned serious attempts to stem the downward movement in prices. In the futures and options markets, market makers were not a significant factor during that time. Price changes and trading activity were highly erratic from late Monday afternoon through most of the day on Tuesday, October 20, as market makers were overwhelmed by selling. Realistically, in the face of October's violent shifts in selling demand for equity-related securities, a rational downward transition in stock prices was not possible. Market makers possessed neither the resources nor the willingness to absorb the extraordinary volume of selling demand that materialized. Even under conceivable alternative arrangements, market makers would still face limited incentives and resources to manage an absolutely smooth transition in the face of the kind of demand fluctuations which confronted them on October 19 and 20. The violence of the market movements, both upward and downward, threatened to undermine the integrity of the markets and may have substantially inhibited buyers' participation. At the same time, these market shifts created uncertainty about the solvency of major market-making institutions, both directly and through the impact of these rapid price changes on the clearing and settlement systems of the futures and options markets. These factors in turn threatened the availability of credit to market makers, which could have forced them, at a minimum, to curtail their market-making activities and, at worst, to fail. By midday Tuesday, October 20, it appeared possible that a continuing steep decline could have reduced the capital of certain market makers to a level at which they could not obtain sufficient additional funds to continue their participation in the markets. At that point, 
the major exchanges might have decided to halt trading. The consequences of such a sequence of events, even without a failure of a major broker-dealer or a clearinghouse, could have been severe. Yet, at one point, on October 20, such an outcome appeared to be conceivable. End of Section 5 Recording by Patrick McAfee, Merritt Island